Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Monday, August 8th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, Ukraine vows no compromise with Russia. So an aide to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky vowed Monday that there will be no compromise with Moscow to end the fighting in Ukraine and rejected the idea of a ceasefire. So so this is Mykhailo Podolyak. He said that the only foundation for negotiations could be Zelensky's peace formula which calls for a full Russian withdrawal before peace talks can even happen. So Podolyak wrote on Twitter, or X as it's called now, quote, there can be no compromise positions such as immediate ceasefires and negotiations here and now that give Russia time to stay in the occupied territories, end quote. The comments came after a report from the Wall Street Journal suggested that Kiev might be softening its stance on peace talks, which I covered yesterday. That report recapped talks on the war that were held in Saudi Arabia over the weekend that were attended by officials from 42 countries, including the U.S., Ukraine, and some of the big non-aligned nations, including China, India, Brazil. So the report said that at that summit, Ukraine did not push for its peace plan to be accepted and did not press the point that all Russian troops must withdraw before peace talks could happen, which, of course, is a non-starter for negotiations with Moscow. But Podolyak reaffirmed that Ukraine is opposed to negotiations. He said the only thing that could pave the way for that is the withdrawal of Russian troops to the 1991 border. And the 1991 border refers to, uh, you know, the border at the end of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that would require Russia to leave Crimea, which it has controlled since 2014. And Crimea is also populated by... People who are happy they're part of Russia, that's something Russia is never going to give up without a fight. Poroyak said that there should be no Minsk III, referring to the Minsk I and II agreements that were signed in an effort to end the civil war in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region, which was sparked following the 2014 U.S.-backed coup in Kiev. So under these Minsk Accords, Kiev agreed to cede some autonomy to the self-declared republics in the Donbass, Donetsk and Luhansk, and, but they would still remain part of Ukraine, so they would get some level of autonomy, but remain part, you know, still be Ukrainian territory, but these deals were never implemented And the Minsk Accords were brokered by France and Germany. Former German Chancellor Angela Merkel, she said last year that the idea of the agreements was to give Ukraine time to build up its military to prepare for a war with Russia. So it sounds like, you know, it was all, they never intended to implement them. Poroshenko has said the same thing, who was the Ukrainian uh, president at the time. And... The former French president, Francois Hollande, who also negotiated these agreements with Merkel and, you know, Ukraine and the people in the Donbass, he agreed that Merkel was right, that it was about, you know, giving Ukraine time to prepare to build up its military. 
He said, and he told this to reporters in December 2022, again, after Merkel made her comments. Uh, Holland said, quote, since 2014, Ukraine has strengthened its military posture. Indeed, the Ukrainian army was completely different from that of 2014. It was better trained and equipped. It is the merit of the Minsk agreements to have given the Ukrainian army this opportunity, end quote. Um, So, you know, you could argue that they might be saying this because they've come under a lot of criticism from other Western countries for brokering these deals. But still, so you have Podolyak saying Ukraine's not going to agree to any of these deals. But another thing that's very important here is, you know, Russia seeing this, seeing basically seeing these Western officials say that they shouldn't trust any deal that's brokered by the U.S. with Ukraine. Uh, you know, so, you know, right now they have no incentive to seek peace talks. And, and here we have Ukraine reaffirming that it is its demand for a full Russian withdrawal. So, again, you know, unfortunately, uh, there is still no sign that, you know, peace talks or anything like that are going to happen anytime soon. As long as the U.S. and NATO keep backing Ukraine as much as they are, you know, this thing's just going to keep going. Um, All right. So the next article here, a look at the amount of the U.S. spending powering Ukraine's defense. This is actually an article from The Washington Post. It's really just, you know, charts um, that show the amount of money that the U.S. has given Ukraine and kind of putting it in context. So I thought it was pretty interesting. And it says that the United States has committed more than $60 billion in aid to Ukraine since the beginning of Russia's full-scale invasion. That includes more than $43 billion in military aid. So I know $113 billion is the number I always say that Congress has authorized to spend on this war. That doesn't all go to Ukraine. A lot of that is being spent on replenishing the stockpiles of weapons that the U.S. sent to Ukraine. So that's why it's such a huge boon for the arms industry. Um, And some of it just goes to the Pentagon to pay for deployments in Eastern Europe and things like that. And they still haven't doled all of it out yet to Ukraine. And, you know, this is way more than the U.S. distributes in aid to any other country. And what's interesting, this article mentions that a year and a half into the conflict, U.S. public support for funding the war is wavering, particularly among Republicans. Uh, They have a chart here that shows some key events when it comes to U.S. military aid. Uh, The first package that the Biden administration announced after the invasion was for $350 million, which included small arms, munitions, body armor, equipment, things like that. And it would be the first of dozens of packages announced for Ukraine as the war continued. Um, So in the first year, the total of aid after one year was $31.8 billion that the U.S. gave to Ukraine. And so this is $43.1 billion in military aid. That's what the U.S. has admitted to, has told us about. You know, there could be other things that are going over there that we don't know about. I think that's always a possibility. Um, And that's $23.5 billion in weapons and equipment. That's what they send directly from Pentagon stockpiles. And then $18 billion in security assistance, which is funding pledged by the Pentagon to invest in more weapons training. So those are the things that they're purchasing for Ukraine. And then $1.5 billion in grants and loans for weapons equipment. And then the other type of aid is the economic. $20.5 billion in economic aid has been given to Ukraine, and they call this budgetary aid because this is money that goes to the Ukrainian government's budget. It funds government services, or that's what they're telling us it is doing. You know, this is cash that they're just handing to the Ukrainian government. 
um, for things like pensions and you know stuff like that, and also 2.6 billion dollars in humanitarian aid. So the total is 66.2 billion dollars. Um, and they quote some expert here who says the only thing that it can be compared to is the Marshall Plan, which was the U.S. aid committed to rebuilding Europe after World War II, which, uh, when adjusted to inflation, came out to be about 150 billion dollars over three years. So the only thing remotely comparable is that huge figure in, in the Marshall Plan, which was a pretty serious reconstruction effort. And the reconstruction hasn't even started in Ukraine. That's another thing that I'm sure the U.S. is going to be spending on. Um, so it's interesting here. Then they compare it to the military budget. And according to the Washington Post, the 2023 military budget was $1.77 trillion dollars which is far more than the NDAA that they approved for that year. So that goes to show that that's you know, not the final military budget by any means. Um, so they compare it to that number and also other aid that they've given to other countries. And in the same amount of time that the U.S. gave Ukraine $66.2 billion, Israel got $8.6 billion, Egypt got $3.3 billion, and Jordan got $2.9 billion. So those are the heavy hitters when it comes to receiving U.S. aid. Israel, Egypt, Jordan, and Ukraine, you know, far and away exceeds them. Um, so just thought that was interesting to take a look at the numbers in that perspective. All right, so the next one here, Victoria Newland meets with the Niger junta leaders. So acting Deputy Secretary of State Victoria Newland traveled to Niger's capital, Niamey, on Monday and held what she described as difficult talks with members of the junta that ousted Nigerian President Mohamed Bazoum in a July 26th coup. So she wrote on Twitter that she went there to express, quote, grave concern at the undemocratic attempts to seize power and urged a return to constitutional order, end quote. You know, it's just never good to see Newland being the one making these trips. You know, she's most notoriously known for her role in the 2014 coup in Ukraine and the leaked phone call, you know, saying who should be in the next Ukrainian government. And, and she was there on the ground handing out, you know, cookies to protesters and just things like that. And she's just an ultra, ultra, ultra Russia hawk. So, again, it's just not good that she's the first U.S. official to go over there you know, after this coup happens. So Newland spoke with reporters on the phone after her talks and said that the conversations, she described them as extremely frank and at times quite difficult because the U.S. is pushing for a negotiated solution. She said, quote, they are quite firm in their view on how they want to proceed and it does not comport with the constitution of Niger, end quote. So interestingly, Newland said that she met with Musa Salau. Barmu, who has declared himself Niger's defense chief. So she met with him and three other colonels. So this Barmu guy, uh, Nick Terse of The Intercept, reported that he previously received military training from the U.S. And this is a pattern in these coups in West Africa that usually the coup leaders were trained by the U.S. because the U.S. is very involved there. And it just shows what a failure this policy is. You know, it's supposed to be counterterrorism. There's way more terrorism in the region than there was when the U.S. got involved. And the U.S. says they're there to help, you know, uphold democracy. And then you have all these military coups by people that were trained by the U.S. And uh, Newland mentioned this in her comments to reporters. She said, quote, 
General Barmu, former Colonel Barmu, is somebody who has worked very closely with U.S. Special Forces over many, many years. So we were able to go through in considerable detail the risks to aspects of our cooperation that he has historically cared about a lot. So we are hopeful that will sink in, end quote. So the Biden administration has said that it paused assistance to Niger, but has yet to officially call the situation a coup because that would um, require cutting off all aid. And the U.S. has backed threats of military intervention to reinstate Bazoom made by the economic community of Western African states, ECOWAS. And so Newland did not mention potential military intervention in the call with reporters. And unfortunately, nobody asked her about it. Nobody asked her, is the U.S. considering backing military? You know, that seems like a very important question when it comes to this situation. But she kind of, you know, she had very threatening language, you know, just the way she was talking. She said that she hoped the junta would keep the door open to diplomacy, but she sounded doubtful that they would. She said that she spoke with Bazoom by phone, who's the president that was ousted in the coup, but she was denied a meeting with him. Who's he's currently being held under house arrest. She was also denied a meeting with Niger's declared leader, General Tiani. Um, so she said she had to, you know, express all of her concerns to Barmu. So Newland said that she also warned against cooperation with Wagner, which is a Russian mercenary force that has a presence in the region. Um, so again, just definitely concerning to see Newland being the, the face over there in Niger. And, you know, I really wish one of these reporters would ask uh, about the possibility of military intervention because there's 1,100 U.S. troops in the country with a big drone base. There's French troops. You got Burkina Faso and Mali and other and Guinea, you know, saying that they'll support the Niger junta if there is a war. So it could turn into a a big war in the region. Um, You know, so hopefully that is avoided. Uh, the next one here, ECOWAS to hold second emergency summit on Niger. So again, this is that block of West African nations. They're going to hold another emergency summit on the situation in Niger this Thursday after the Niger junta ignored the block's deadline to reinstate President Mohamed Bazoum. So they were threatening military action, and they said if Bazoum is not reinstated by Sunday, August 6th, which has already passed, then they would you know, restore him by any means, you know, using force if necessary was basically how they said it. And the Niger junta has remained defiant in the face of these threats and sanctions that have been imposed by ECOWAS nations. A Niger junta spokesman said Sunday that they closed their airspace and that they're preparing for an attack. They're preparing to defend the country from this intervention. So ECOWAS leaders will meet Thursday in Nigeria's capital and Nigerian President Bola Tinubu. He has sought authorization to invade Niger from Nigeria's Senate. They cautioned against the move. Um, So we'll see how this plays out, what happens at this meeting on Thursday. And again, it's not looking good. I mean, there's no sign that this junta is going to back down. And it also doesn't look like ECOWAS and the U.S. is going to give this up. Because even the the Nigerian senators who warned against intervention, they said, let's exhaust all of our diplomatic options first. You know, they didn't say, let's not do this at all. They kind of left it open as an option. All right, the next one here, President Biden signs a U.S.-Taiwan trade deal into law. So this article is from the South China Morning Post. 
And President Biden on Monday signed into law a bill that approves the first agreement negotiated under the U.S.-Taiwan Initiative on 21st Century Trade and commits the administration to consult Congress for future agreements under the initiative. The agreement, signed on June 1st, covers streamlining customs procedures, combating corruption, and helping small businesses navigate regulatory procedures in both markets. It broadly aims to strengthen the U.S.-Taiwan trade and economic relationship, but does not include any market access provisions. So it's the first of several agreements expected under the 21st Century Trade Initiative, a framework for bilateral talks jointly launched by the two sides in June last year. So the bill is called the United States-Taiwan Initiative on 21st Century Trade First Agreement Implementation Act was first announced in June by the leaders of the Senate Finance Committee and the House Ways and Means Committee. Uh, it passed the House in the same month and the Senate in July. So this is, you know, the first of many of these trade deals that the U.S. and Taiwan are negotiating and working out. And the reason why I'm covering this is just because this is an example of the U.S. and Taiwan increasing ties, something that China is not not happy about. They're very much against all, you know, U.S.-Taiwanese um, cooperation, you know, not just military, also diplomatic and economic, not so much trading with them, but, you know, signing these new trade deals and engaging, you know, government to government. That's what really angers China. Um, so it's something to keep an eye on. All right. So the next one here, China wants the Philippines to remove a ship from a disputed reef. So China has called on the Philippines to remove a grounded warship from a disputed reef in the South China Sea after an encounter in the area between Chinese and Philippine Coast Guard vessels. So over the weekend, Chinese vessels fired water cannons at Philippine boats, trying to resupply a grounded ship on 2nd Thomas Shoal, which is a feature of the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. So the Philippines grounded a World War II-era ship, the BRP Sierra Madre, on the shoal in 1999 to assert its claims and has used it as a base of operations in the area. So while Beijing is calling for the Philippines to remove the vessel, Philippine officials said on Monday that they would never give up the shoal, so they're not going to do it. Second Thomas Shoal and other areas in the South China Sea have become a potential flashpoint for a war between the U.S. and China. The U.S. has repeatedly vowed that attacks on Philippine vessels in the waters would invoke the U.S.-Philippine Mutual Defense Treaty, And they did so again after the latest incident. So after this happened on Saturday, again, these Chinese boats firing water cannons. The State Department put out a statement that said, quote, The United States reaffirms that an armed attack on Philippine public vessels, aircraft, and armed forces, including those of its Coast Guard in the South China Sea, would invoke U.S. mutual defense commitments under Article 4 of the 1951 U.S.-Philippines Mutual Defense Treaty, end quote. So, you know, this is important. This is an area where the U.S. is pledging to go to war if, you know, China attacks one of these ships, you know, beyond a water cannon or something like that, if they actually fire on on them with, you know, live ammunition. Um, And U.S. military officials have previously said that the U.S. is ready to help the Philippines resupply this grounded ship because they've been being they've been blocked by Chinese vessels. So, You know, if you throw American boats, say Coast Guard cutters, because the Coast Guard is increasing its presence near, you know, in that region, 
you know, that's just adds a whole new danger to it. If the U.S. is directly involved in these incidents that happen pretty frequently. Um, so it's just, again, just an area that could really spiral into something out of control. And a spokesman for the Chinese Coast Guard on Monday defended China's actions near 2nd Thomas Shoal, saying that they blocked the Philippine boats in accordance with the law and took cautionary enforcement measures after issuing warnings. All right, so the next one here, four Syrian soldiers killed by Israeli airstrikes. So Israeli airstrikes targeted the Syrian capital of Damascus early Monday morning, killing four Syrian soldiers and wounding four more. This is uh, reported by Syria's state news agency. A Syrian military source said, quote, At around 2.20 a.m. on Monday, the Israeli enemy carried out an aerial act of aggression from the direction of the occupied Syrian Golan, targeting some sites in Damascus. Our air defenses intercepted the missiles and shot down some of them, and the aggression resulted in the martyrdom of four army personnel and the injury of four others, in addition to causing some material damages, end quote. So this attack marks at least the 21st Israeli bombing of Syria this year. And Israel rarely acknowledges these individual attacks in Syria, but earlier this year, the government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that they doubled airstrikes in Syria since coming to power at the end of December 2022. In the spring, they they were bombing them very frequently. Um, Well, in the winter, too, because also after that earthquake killed thousands of people in Syria, Israel was bombing uh, the Aleppo airport, which was you know, receiving earthquake aid and they put it out of commission three times, which is, you know, really something. Um, So more Israeli airstrikes on Syria and, you know, just get such little attention. Israel's air campaign against Syria. All right. So the next one here, 3000 U.S. troops arrive in the Middle East amid Iran tensions. So over 3000 U.S. Marines and Navy sailors arrived in the Middle East on Sunday as part of a previously announced deployment aimed at Iran as tensions are rising in the region. So the troops are part of an amphibious readiness group, Marine Expeditionary Unit, and they arrived on board the amphibious assault ship USS Bataan and dock landing ship USS Carter Hall. So the vessels entered the Red Sea on Sunday after transiting the Suez Canal. So responding to the deployment, Iran's foreign ministry accused the U.S. of fueling regional instability. U.S. Naval Naval Central Forces Central Command said the deployment is a response to harassment and seizures of merchant vessels. So Iran seized two tankers in the Persian Gulf earlier this year. And the crucial, crucial context here is that these incidents came after the U.S. seized a tanker carrying Iranian oil. The U.S. seized the Greek tanker Suez Rajan in April under the pretext of sanctions enforcement. They forced the ship to head for Texas instead of China. And the U.S. intends to steal the 800,000 barrels of Iranian oil that it was carrying. Um, But according to recent media reports, U.S. companies are not discharging the oil because they're afraid of Iranian reprisals uh, in the Persian Gulf. So maybe these deployments are part of a way for the U.S. to tell these companies, you know, don't worry, we're going to make sure they don't seize any more tankers. Um, And, you know, this comes as I went over last week, the U.S. military is considering placing armed troops on commercial vessels in the region, which is just which would be unprecedented and. 
it's just a huge risk. It would significantly heighten the risk of a direct clash between the U.S. and Iran breaking out uh, over this, you know, new tanker war that seems to be going on here. All right, so the last one here, this is from Responsible Statecraft. Top five U.S. weapons contractors made $196 billion in 2022. This article is from Connor Eccles. So American weapons makers continue to dominate the global arms industry with four U.S.-based companies in the world's top five military contractors, according to a new defense news ranking of the top 100 defense firms. So in 2022, America's top five weapons contractors made $196 billion in military-related revenue. Lockheed Martin dominated all other defense-focused companies with total military revenue of roughly $63 billion last year. RTX, formerly known as Raytheon Technologies, was a distant second, earning roughly $40 billion in revenue in 2022. So again, just an example of what a boon this is for the U.S. arms makers, the, the war in Ukraine, the tensions with China and all that. And uh, we always have to mention that Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, came from Raytheon. He was on he was a Raytheon board member before taking his job as the head of the Pentagon. So the same five American prime contractors have long dominated lists of the world's biggest arm manufacturers, and that's Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, and General Dynamics. Um, they've remained in the top seven of the defense news ranking since it began in 2000, and that's top seven in the world. Um, so pretty significant. Uh, that is it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints, DC's Undemocratic Military Offspring. That's by Ted Galen Carpenter. One from William J. Astore, Silencing Voices for Peace. One from Kelly Vlahos at Responsible Statecraft. Most Americans don't want Congress to approve more aid for the Ukraine war. That's about that CNN poll that found 55% of Americans are against Congress authorizing more spending on the war. One from Michael Chapman, Not One Inch, A Brief Look at the Written Record. That's over at the Libertarian Institute. And our spotlight is from Peter Van Buren, Seven Lessons for Ukraine. That is at the American Conservative. That's it for me for today. You could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Like and subscribe to this on YouTube, Odyssey Rumble, wherever you watch. Leave comments. Uh, that All that stuff helps out. But I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening. <laughs>